Welcome back to another episode of What's the Word, an electrical industry podcast. I am your host, Zach Hartle, and I am joined, as always, by Jason Cox. We're very excited for our episode today. Jason, who do we have on the show today? Our guest today, Zach, is Neil Moffat. Neil is the Director of Health, Safety, and Environment at Canem Systems Limited. He's the Vice President of the Electrical Contractors Association Executive Board. He's the presiding officer of the Alberta Provincial Apprenticeship Committee. He's the past chair of the Alberta Construction Safety Association. He's got a gold seal, and he's a national construction safety officer. That is quite the list of credentials, uh, and I couldn't think of anyone more qualified to be here today to talk about COVID. So, right, we're right in the middle of a fourth wave. We just want to get into a little bit about how a company such as Canham Systems or any electrical contractor operates through COVID and how COVID is going to affect things and change their operations. So I guess with that, let's jump into our episode. Today, we're joined by Neil Moffitt. Neil, welcome to What's the Word? Yeah, thanks for having me, Jason. Neil, you've been involved in the electrical industry for over 35 years now. Your area of expertise is safety. How has workplace safety changed over the last decade? Uh, Well, it's... uh... It's certainly moving uh, forward, you know, starting to look at different ways of uh, recognizing and identifying um, hazards. Uh, certainly, um, you know, a, 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 an individual or a company's safety record uh, certainly has a much more significant part to play uh, in their ability to, uh, to win uh, projects uh, than it was. Uh, 15, uh, 20 years ago, um, you know, there's uh, certificate of recognition programs uh, that are out there um, across all of the different provinces. Uh, Alberta is certainly not an exception. Um, and so it's about uh, ongoing uh, continuous improvement and, uh, you know, looking for ways to uh, looking for better ways to educate people um on how to recognize and uh and mitigate uh, the hazards that they do uh, come across on a daily basis so part of my next question would be um have the attitudes changed over the last 10 years and i think you've already answered part of that so it sounds like your customers are taking safety into account when they're looking for contractors most definitely you know, I mean, like everything else, um, you know, it has to have an impetus. And certainly uh, clients are uh, much more demanding uh, now th- than they were before. I think you see more of a difference now between uh, a public company uh, versus a private company in terms of, of, uh, of, of what some of their expectations uh, might be that they're looking for. So, for sure, those attitudes have changed on the front end, and, and that's all the part that leads into whether or not you're successful in getting a job, right? Um, I think the other, the other piece of the puzzle, a uh, very important piece of the puzzle, is the individual attitude of, uh, of workers on the job sites. And certainly uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, there's, there's been a big change there as well. Um, you know, I think that uh, it, it, it's pretty commonplace now 
uh, to see things like uh, mandatory glove programs, uh, mandatory eye protection programs, um, that type of thing. You didn't see those 20, 25 years ago. You see them now. Um, you know, a lot of the, uh, uh, and I think that the attitude of the, the attitudes and the expectations of the younger generations that are making their way in the industry has changed as well. Um, you know, I think that society has done a pretty good job of, uh, of uh, bringing safety forward uh, as, a, as a number one concern. Uh, for people and, and you know in, in in their daily lives so I think younger people now have a higher expectation of uh, the ability to be able to work in a safe environment than 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 they did 20 25 years ago excellent yeah that really answers that was the second part of my question was have the attitude changed with the workers too and very interesting the the comment uh, of working for a public, versus private contractor that obviously everyone is accountable, but when you're a publicly traded company, that, that makes sense as well. Yeah. Well, I'm, you know, I mean, a publicly traded company is uh, basically gets the direction from, from a board and certainly, you know, these boards and the people that are on these boards, um, you know, I mean, their, their number one motive, their number one driver is to, you know, ensure that the business has in place the things that will protect uh, the best interests of that business and position it for growth and uh, continued success. Uh, Neil, so one of the main reasons we wanted to have you on the show today, obviously, you're a wealth of knowledge, having so much expertise in safety within the trade. Uh, but we're in the middle of a fourth wave here, you know, hopefully it's on the downturn. But um COVID's obviously been one of the biggest challenges you've seen in your role. Um, so maybe can you just talk a little bit about how you operate during a pandemic, how it really changed your day-to-day thinking on safety? And we'll kind of start with that. And I'm sure we'll branch off into many more aspects of it. Yeah. You know, like in terms of, uh, you know, did, did attitudes change in regards to day-to-day safety expectations or, you know, just general attitudes. I don't think that COVID um, really has had much effect on that, you know, overall attitude. Um, most definitely, uh, COVID has created the opportunity to, uh, and, and the need <laughs> um, to have certain things uh, taken care of or evaluated in order to continue to operate. Um, you know, the, the, the construction industry uh, as a whole, uh, you know, across the country and certainly in all the provinces has done an amazing job of keeping, keeping the lights on, you know, keeping the, <laughs> keeping the, keeping the power on, keeping the work going. Um, construction was uh, fortunate enough to be deemed uh, an essential service. So that certainly provided the opportunity for construction workers to continue, uh, continue to work. But most definitely, the part that has changed is what you have to do on a job site to be able to continue to work in a COVID world. Um, so uh, it hasn't been so much, um, uh, you know, polishing up, you know, old 
old ideas or, 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 or old attitudes or that type of thing. It's been about understanding that COVID means that we need to do things differently. We have to assess, we have to have a closer look at if and when our people are working in close proximity to one another. And if they are, then how can they protect themselves? Uh, and if they can't protect themselves, then the, op the opportunity is to revisit how are you actually getting some of those tasks done? Um, so I think that, uh, you know, in, in, terms of, in, in terms of how do you do things differently, um, COVID ha has provided the opportunity for people to look at how they might go about getting everyday tasks uh, done. Uh, certainly the other uh, piece of the puzzle you know, has been around, you know, how do people interact on that job site? So, you know, it's, uh, you know, the old days or, you know, a typical construction site would be, you know, one site office and, uh, and one site lunchroom uh, with a consistent, a consistent lunchtime. Um, what COVID has done is it's forced people to look at things like um, staggered break times uh, staggered lunch times. Um, in fact, maybe even doubling or tripling uh, the number of break rooms uh, that you might have uh, available on the job site, um, just so that you can, you know, allow people the opportunity to take their breaks and take their lunch uh, in an environment where you know they can <laughs> take their coats off and. Uh, you know, take their masks off and, and and relax for 15 or 30 minutes and and have some lunch, but do so uh, in an environment that is protected. So, you know, we've got examples of lunchrooms that have uh, barriers around individual tables, uh, barriers between individual, you know, lunch stations or that type of thing. Um, so certainly those changes have been the big ones. Um, you know, I think that uh, I think that along with that, um, you know, you still I, I would say for sure that when it first started, um, everything needed to slow down <laughs> because you had to stop doing things the way you were doing it before. So for the first little bit, there was most definitely, I would say, a heightened level of awareness in slowing down and being aware of what the right way to do things was. And it might take you a little bit longer to get stuff done. Uh, once people got, got kind of comfortable with that, then, you know, things started to kind of get back to, uh, get back to a normal uh, or, or a, a COVID normal. Uh, there's no, no such thing as normal anymore, but there is a COVID normal. So. Yeah. One thing you said there that I really, I don't know, resonates with me is that, that it's an opportunity, right? COVID is an opportunity. At no point is it is it a challenge or a barrier. It's just an opportunity to, like you say, even assess some of your older safety policies and bring them in line, right? Really assess the day-to-day -day operations of a site. So I don't know, using it as an opportunity, I think is a great way to look at it. Yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, people that have been successful with how they've been able to function uh, through COVID, um, is uh, probably due in large part because of maybe that little bit of a shift in attitude uh, or, or that type of thing, you know, to try and focus on, uh, you know, spending your time thinking about and talking about 
How can we do this safely? How can we improve on this? As opposed to, you know, spending the time complaining about the fact that we have to do something different because there's this virus out there that, you know, uh, we really don't know that much about. <laughs> so Neil, uh, in your position right now, you oversee work done in multiple provinces. How is it that you are getting your message out to your field staff uh, throughout multiple provinces? Well, we have, uh, I mean, we have uh, safety uh, coordinators uh, in each one of our major branches or, or, or major areas. So in terms of a conduit, that, that's been the conduit that we've used. Um, but, you know, if you go back to, you know, um, how did we decide what the message was going to be or what the COVID procedures were going to be? Um, at the beginning, that was a really big uh, struggle. Uh, because we do operate in five provinces and right off the get-go there were differences in the provinces in terms of terms of isolation and symptoms and you know the whole the the whole reporting uh of covid and you know uh, websites and that type of thing so what we did early on in the get-go was we went to we used the public health agency of canada uh, guidelines uh, for the most part to be able to identify, say, you know, items like the symptoms that we were going to be looking for, uh, you know, on our COVID questionnaires and that type of thing. Um, we looked at, you know, the differences in the provinces uh, in terms of, uh, you know, days of isolation that might be required uh, or anything else like that. And for the most part, we looked for opportunities to be able to um, to be able to apply the most stringent uh, or, or the highest level um, of what some of those standards were. So, you know, there was a little bit of an education process. Let's just say, for example, maybe if somebody in BC was looking at, you know, the number of days that you would uh, have to be uh, in in uh, in isolation versus the number of days in Alberta well I mean from the get-go the numbers were different um, so you know when we did settle on the higher number you know you get some people in some provinces that you know might have said well okay well why do we have to do this well at the end of the day the reason the the driving force between behind everything that we have done with with COVID has been about making sure that we're doing everything that is reasonably possible to protect the health of our people. So if that means that we're applying a higher standard to people in Manitoba than what the Manitoba government would say, well, so be it. But at the end of the day, we wanted to make sure that we were applying a standard that would provide the greatest level of, uh, of uh, support and or protection uh, to our people across the country. And then, and then, and, and then we communicated that, uh, you know, we put together a, a, a safe job procedure that uh, at last count, I think we're on the ninth revision of that uh, safe job procedure. Um, it, it's, it, it's been an ongoing uh, living, breathing document. Um, and that is how we have uh, been able to, uh, to uh, spread the message on uh, what is required. 
it's, I think it's all about information and it's frustrating because it is changing constantly. And I mean, like you said, you're dealing with five provinces and five different best practices. So, yeah. so yeah, communication would be key to your staff for sure. Yeah. I think that, uh, you know, if you talk about communication, I think that probably the biggest problem, the biggest concern that COVID has, has caused is it has basically pitted people against one another because everybody watches the news, they read the paper, they're reading the tweets, they're, uh, you know, they're doing all this stuff, they're becoming educated. And, and, and then there's, you know, the, then there's the conversations and it's all about what individuals' interpretations of the regulations or the restrictions are. Um, so it's been, it's been difficult on all of us, I think, uh, because it's a very personal thing. I mean, even right now, vaccination is a, at the end of the day, it's a personal choice. You know, I mean, you either believe in it or you don't believe in it and uh, you're either going to do it or you're not going to do it. So I think that's the biggest problem. Uh, very early on, we developed a process whereby uh, we had individuals uh, identified in each region as a designated tracker. And their job basically was to uh, gather information from people that weren't coming to work uh, because they were exhibiting symptoms, uh, whether or not they needed testing or that type of thing. And then, you know, and then interpreting uh, and communicating with those folks uh, on, you know, what their what their length of isolation might be or what the next step forward might be or what the next requirement might be. So early on, we set our we set up a process whereby we had, uh, you know, all of these discussions around COVID isolations and positive, negative, and that kind of thing. All of that stuff was being funneled through one individual uh, in a region. And what that allowed us to do was to be able to do as good a job as we possibly could in ensuring that the message that everybody heard on March the 16th, 2020, was still the same message that they might be hearing uh, a, a, a year later. So a level of consistency, um, but by having that, that designated person in each region who was responsible to you know, gather this information and speak with the workers, um, it, it put us in a, in a position of making sure that the information that we were putting out there was consistent so that people heard the same thing from Canada. Yeah, that's a great point. And there's no question that having that consistent uh, voice and person to go to can be so helpful for everyone, right? Especially during the stresses of the pandemic with so much misinformation out there, more conflicting information. Um, now, as we're kind of changing, shifting modes from a restriction lockdown into more vaccinations and you know less restrictions, uh, how are you guys pivoting with all that information now? Um, right now, uh, the conversation is all about understanding uh, what client owner and uh, you know maybe some general contractors what their requirements are in terms of vaccination and uh, testing uh, whether they're going to allow it what type you know is it an accommodation or what have you so that uh, right now the conversation has changed 
um, you know, certainly at uh, certainly at a level in 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 the companies because you've got clients that are, you know, sending out letters and saying, okay, well, this is our mandatory vaccination requirement as of such and such a date. So, you know, we want you to sign off on this. But then at the end of the day, as an individual contractor, now it's put us into the position of needing to, to develop processes so that we can make people aware of what the requirements are to access a certain site. And in some cases, uh, we might even have to maybe not dispatch somebody to a site because we know or, or we're told that they can't uh, meet those vaccination requirements. So certainly in the last month, that has been the focus of the conversation uh, throughout the industry. Uh, uh, and it's, you know, it's, 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 it, it's, it's just kind of, it, it, it's reframing the conversation around, okay, what do we have to do to actually be able to go in there and do some work? And then once we get there at the end of the day, we're still surviving on the job sites within the same, you know, uh, close work, uh, close proximity rules, um, you know, distancing as much as possible, um, assessing the health of people on a daily basis. You still have, uh, you know, you still have the daily health questionnaires for uh, people to get on sites and that type of thing. But uh, the conversation has definitely changed now where uh, where the requirement is, is for you as a company owner or, or as a company officer to uh, to sign off and uh, you know basically sign a declaration saying that your people will meet that client's uh, vaccination requirements prior to dispatching into the site. Neil, it seems like the behavior of work tasks and how you would do a job now has to be considered when we're dealing with COVID. Um, I would imagine the COVID PPE, wearing a mask and keeping your hands gloves uh, sanitize is not a problem. Um, how has your response been from your staff regarding wearing the PPE and following the, the standards for hygiene? You know, I mean, I think that overall it's been pretty good. I think that early on uh, people definitely struggled because it was something new that needed to happen, uh, especially with the wearing of a mask. I mean, you know, uh, you, the only other thing, Usually, the only time you wear a mask is when you're in a, you know, uh, you're in an environment that has some concerns about oxygen uh, availability or you know quality of the air or that type of thing. But so certainly, people uh, had some struggles with uh, different types of masks um, and and what that uh, you know did to them in terms of a being able to breathe, but actually more importantly. Uh, we ended up finding that a lot of people were having issues uh, with uh, safety glasses uh, fogging up. Uh, so we actually, you know, had to, uh, you know, it took a little bit of time uh, for us to find, uh, you know, the type glasses or the types of glasses or uh, different types of sprays that would uh, limit uh, or eliminate uh, the fogging uh, of the eyewear while you were wearing the mask. So that uh, that was definitely a bit of a changer and it, it definitely, you know, caused some caused some concern for people. I think that you did, 
you know, you, whereas you might have expected to see somebody wearing their glasses 20, you know, you know, set seven out of the eight hours they were on the job site. Well, with COVID, I, I think that anytime there was an opportunity to take them off or to slip the mask down is something that, that people would do. But certainly if you were ever in close proximity with people, you know, you you got to keep those things on. And then it's a matter of, you know, okay, is this the right, I mean, look at all the discussions about what the right types of masks were. I mean, <laughs> the yeah. end of the day, you know, there was two ply, three ply, uh, this, that, and everything else. So, uh, you know, I mean, at the end of the day uh, with this particular virus here, you know, as long as you can, you know, control the, those, the, those airborne particles, you're, you're doing something right. So. And like you were saying, our industry is very fortunate that it was able to continue to work during COVID, right? There was other industries that were um, shut down. So I think eventually that gets gets to everyone's kind of perspective. We kind of see just how fortunate we are that we can continue to work. And, mm-hmm. and then obviously compliance with the safety equipment, whether it's the mask or hygiene. I mean, it just makes sense as far as hey you're still trying to make a paycheck yeah and you know what i mean i think that uh you know in terms of the benefit or you know you know should people have been working i mean there are a lot of people that have, a lot of people that were affected by covid in a negative manner when it came to their employment some people lost their jobs completely uh i mean in construction at least we were able to uh to uh to maintain that and, and, and keep that going. And I mean, the construction industry as a whole, certainly not just us, but as a whole, you know, across all the different trades and all the different disciplines and stuff like that. I mean, you know, I think that you have to, uh, we have to tip our hats off to, uh, to the folks that, you know, were, you know, supervisors and leaders and, and workers in those companies, because at the end of the day, throughout this 20 months of COVID that has been, um, you know, I, 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 I think that you could make a case that the safest place for somebody was at work. Because it, it, at work, in order for you to keep working, you had to have specific processes or protocols in place. Um, outside of work, you know, it's pretty easy to let your guard down. Uh, you know, and do some stuff that are maybe outside of the restrictions or maybe not, or, you know, maybe just let your guard down a little bit. So, you know, uh, you know, I, I think that at the end of the day, um, you know, our, our experience throughout COVID, I think that we might have identified one, one particular instance where the virus itself was maybe contracted or you know, uh, transmitted from the site. Everything else was coming from off-site into the job site. So, um, but I mean, that's that's not exactly a hundred percent either, because you could have that argument for forever trying to determine where where something might have actually transmitted from. Yeah, that the tracing of um, the source of the virus is something that I mean, we'll never get a hundred percent for sure. Uh, when you when that does happen, when there is confirmed cases on sites, I mean, I'm sure it shifted a little bit throughout the pandemic. But how were uh, outbreaks or transmissions on a site or brought in from a site? How were those dealt with? Um, well, uh, 
again, I, I mentioned earlier that we had set up uh, every region with a uh, what we called a designated tracker, um, and and that person was basically the the record keeper and the guidance provider, the resource person uh, for people on job sites to you know let us know what was going on in regards to COVID and people having symptoms or that type of thing. So what we found, we were basically doing our own contact tracing. So if you have an individual who woke up on Monday morning and not feeling well, phones in to the supervisor and says, you know what, I'm not feeling well today. Uh, I, I got a cough, I got a runny nose, I got a bit of a fever. You know, that person would immediately then be in contact with the designated tracker and the designated tracker would, you know, capture their information and, you know, you know, log it uh, and, and then, you know, kind of go from there, um, you know, provide direction on whether or not a test would, uh, would be appropriate or not. Certainly, there's far less testing going on now uh, than there has been over the past year. Um, just because of the, the the nature of you know vaccinations and a certain percentage of people being vaccinated, there's not as much testing going on now. But if you looked at um, you know so what happened when somebody tested positive? So so if somebody tests positive, then we would have already been in contact uh, with them uh, in in most cases. For people that were asymptomatic and, and then testing positive, certainly the positive test would be the first time that we would be aware of what was going on. Um, but because we were doing our own contact tracing and stuff like that, then we would then be trying to understand whether or not people had close contacts or not, who they were, uh, what areas of a job site they worked in on certain days. Um, and then we would let their co-workers know and say, okay, uh, just to let you know, uh, a co-worker of yours has tested positive. It appears that you might have been in close contact with him over the last couple of days or whatever. Monitor yourself. You know, you either A, you know, you've got to isolate right away because that's the way that it kind of used to be. And now that isolation has kind of gone away for uh, for a close contact. But, uh, and I'm probably doing a really crappy job of explaining how we did our own contact tracing, but, but in large part, because of what we were doing, we were doing and gathering information at a rate that was far quicker than any of the other provincial uh, contact tracing authorities could do. And on numerous occasions uh, from every, uh, from all of the different provincial health authorities that we were dealing with, um, when we got into situations where we need to speak, where we needed to speak with them, they were very, very impressed and very, very satisfied and pleased to hear um, that the contact tracing that we were doing uh, uh, of our own was in itself um, very, very complete and made their job uh, an awful lot easier as well. That phone call to the foreman in the morning feeling a little bit sick. That's a much different phone call today than it was 10 years ago, because 10 years ago would have been a come to work, but. And you know what, Jack, I, you know, I mean, you're absolutely bang on there um, because that is one of the things that, you know, early on 
needed to start changing. And, and it's that attitude about people calling in sick and, you know, uh, and, and whether or not you're talking about, you know, the hourly guy working on the job site or whether you're talking about the, the salaried person working in the office, there's no doubt that, you know, we've, uh, we had a pretty proud history of, uh, you know, showing up to work every day or, uh, you know, and, and maybe a little bit of a cough or a little bit of this or whatever. But on, on, on the flip side of that, there's an awful lot of supervisors and bosses out there that, you know, kind of, you know, had the attitude that, eh, really, you're sick again, uh, you know, or, or, or that type of thing. Well, that has had to change, you know, and, and, and we had to, we had to let supervisors know that the message that we were communicating to our people, whether they were hourly or staff, it didn't really matter was, you know what, uh, the, the game has changed. If you're not feeling well, stay home, uh, call in, let us know if appropriate, then we'll put you in, in contact with the designated tracker. And then we're going to follow this through so that you get the right type of help or the right number of days or whatever that you can, you know, feel better. So it's about removing that, that stigma uh, associated with, you know, uh, oh, sick again. Hmm. Okay. The, the uh, power through, get her done, no matter what it take days are clearly coming to an end. Neil, is there any process or procedure that you guys have picked up during COVID that you guys would probably continue to use moving forward, hopefully after the COVID crisis is over? I think that we are definitely going to start looking at how we get jobs done or how we assign tasks differently um, because we've seen that some tasks that we might have gotten used to having more than one person do them, maybe only one person needs to do them. So I, I think that some of those types of attitudes or those types of uh, work uh, changes in, in, in work processes are probably going to be the ones that, that will change. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really hopeful that at some point in time, uh, we will be able to stop producing proof of vaccination or a vaccine passport. Uh, I mean, right now there seems to be about 10 or 12 of those things out there. So I, I you know, I, I would like to think that at some point we'll, we'll, we'll get past that, but I do think that the opportunity to have a look at how we're getting work done uh, is, is going to change. Um, and maybe more so in the, you know, in the administration or in the company, uh, you know, salaried staff type of thing, COVID has presented an opportunity for people to take a really hard look at the work processes that they do have and whether or not those work processes or those work functions have to be performed by somebody in a physical space in an office as opposed to working from home. And again, I, I throw it out there as the opportunity uh, because that's the way to kind of have a look at it. But I do think that you're going to see uh, people make some changes uh, in, in how they do that and identify different types of roles <clears throat> that don't necessarily need to be performed by somebody occupying a, uh, 
a 12 by 12 office in an industrial park somewhere. So I, I you know, I think that you're going to see a little bit of a, uh, so I, I, I think you'll see some companies that will do, uh, will have more of their work functions uh, conducted remotely. Neil, is there a significant difference in how you guys are treating COVID looking at the perspective of your workers going in on a massive construction site and then also your workers maybe in a service van going into a, an establishment? I think that the only difference uh, would really be on the scale of what is in place, whether it was a large construction site or a, uh, a, a small service site, uh, customer's building or, what, or whatever, there would be either a paper questionnaire that would have to be completed or some kind of an electronic version. Um, that would be more applicable in a, in a large case scenario. And so is that slowing down the process for workers to get into big job sites or is it, is it, is it a pretty quick process? For the most part, it's a very quick process. It's certainly quicker now than it was when it was first brought in. Um, you know, I, I mentioned earlier that, you know, we had to look at things like uh, staggering lunchtime, staggering break times. We also had to look at things like uh, staggering break times, especially on the larger sites, so that you didn't have everybody showing up at the same time. You know, if you, you know, as a larger site like the Cancer Center, we had, you know, a couple hundred people there. Well, you can't, <laughs> you know, we, maybe you only have, uh, you only have 80 of them showing up at, uh, at one time and then another 80 and then another 80 and then another 80. So those were changes that needed to be made. And on those big job sites, when you're coming in the gates in the morning, um, was the general contractor the one that was kind of looking at each of the contractors or did you guys kind of take care of your trade? Uh, plumbers took care of their trade. On the larger job sites where somebody has been uh, designated as the prime contractor, then they were the ones that were doing that because that they're in control as the prime contractor, they're in control and responsible for the site for the client. Excellent. You know, Neil, um, thanks so much for coming and chatting with us here about COVID. And I mean, I'm sure it's been a hectic and busy 20 ish months for you now. So really appreciate you taking the time just to come share with us and, the few people who are listening here, uh, your experiences and how it's affected your work. So we appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you. Thanks so much to everyone for listening in on our conversation with Neil Moffat. We thought it was a pretty timely episode to get in some experience in dealing with COVID out there in the industry. Uh, and I definitely learned a lot. Um, and Jason, I'm wondering what are some of your takeaways from the show? One of the takeaways I got from that, episode zach was that uh neil's company was working with the five provinces uh with their health boards for the contact tracing so so it was interesting to see that their initiative to keep their staff working actually benefited the contact tracers and and each of the provinces uh health departments yeah i love to hear that too how that little bit of initiative kept that that clear message for all their employees right Employees spread out over five provinces, getting that clear message right now is just without a doubt, one of the most important things, right? To avoid that misinformation and confusion. So I was glad to hear about that. Um, also glad to say that Neil 
is likely going to come back on the show to talk a little bit more about the Provincial Apprenticeship Committee, or actually what it will soon be called once the dust settles on Bill 67, some new legislation passed here in Alberta, which has huge overarching changes to the electrical trade and apprenticeship training as a whole. So I'm really excited to have him back to chat about that. Yeah, Zach, this Bill 67, uh, it's going to be a game changer. That's what everyone keeps telling us. So when the dust settles, uh, Neil is exactly the kind of person we're looking for in our episode. He's passionate about the industry. He's been volunteering with our industry for years. And uh, I think it would be very interesting to see uh, when the bill is adopted, just what changes those are going to have on apprenticeship and especially the electrical trade. Absolutely. And you know what? Uh, I think that's everything we have for this week. So I just want to thank everybody who came to listen today. We are so glad to have you. Uh, Please share the show with a friend. Let them know if you like it. Of course, you know you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google. Um, Leave us a review. Let us know what you think. And as always, keep yourself safe out there. And if you can, someone else too.